Hello, and welcome to Unk Popular Opinions, a safe space for fans of BTS and other K-pop groups to ask the tough question, what do I think of this? I'm your host, Ginger Nuna, and today I am super excited that for my very first interview, I am with Melanie Fontana. Hello. Hello. So some of you might remember previous episode, we discussed Melanie and her relationship with K-pop overall, and we are going to talk a little bit more about that today. So I think we should start with the question that really everybody wants to know. What's that? (laughs) What's it like to win a Grammy? Okay, so winning a Grammy for me was the most surreal moment, one of the most surreal moments of my life. I was out with my husband. We were driving home from somewhere, I think having dinner, and we got the call from my manager, and my manager was just like, by the way, Dua won the Grammy. You guys got best vocal. And I paused, and then I saw on the side of the street there was a little blue bathtub, and I was like, hey, that would be great for this investment property we're working on right now. So instead of celebrating a Grammy win, we hauled a 1951 American Standard blue bathtub into our driveway. (laughs) I love it. So I could put it into the apartment that we had just purchased for my mom. Nice. And listeners, you're probably thinking, this sound quality is super weird. So a little bit of background. Sam and I are in L.A. currently. We came down for the BTS concert. We got to see two days. We'll talk a little bit more about that in another episode because we want to go through what it was like. But seeing here with Melanie, we're trying to be super COVID friendly and we are meeting outside in lovely Burbank. And if you're not from the area, Burbank is home of the Bob Hope airport so you might hear some airplanes you might hear some lawn work going on because gardeners (laughs) it happens all year round so that's what that noise is but I believe that you can work through it can you work through it I can work through it perfect we're all gonna work through it so I know that you've been writing for a really long time I think I read that your demo tape from when you were in high school it was made of songs that you wrote what was the very first song you ever wrote. Okay, so if I'm remembering correctly, the very first song I ever wrote, I was four and a half years old. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. I remember this very vividly. I was in my parents' basement and I believe I taped over one of my mom's Rod Stewart cassette tapes. You should have done that. Rod Stewart was creepy. (laughs) Bye, Rod Stewart. Your time is over. It's Melanie Fontana time now. (laughs) Uh, No, I, I wrote a song called Banana Seeds about how they're so small and you can barely see them. I was like, you know, like banana seeds, they're good to eat. They're really, really small and you really can't see them. I use the word really a lot. Like it was like a lot of filler, all all filler, no killer back then. My kid does that too. (laughs) They like make rock operas and are in the car always singing weird songs. And it's like, do you even know that I'm listening? But please continue with your stream of consciousness, child. And and they don't care. Then fast forwarding, I think your first big radio hit was Justin Bieber. Uh, You know, that was my very first intro into the music industry, like the real, real music industry uh, as a songwriter was writing a Christmas song for Justin Bieber on his Christmas album. And, you know, naturally being in my early 20s and getting a a cut on a Justin Bieber album, I was like, this is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was not. And it took many years to get another cut. It wasn't just like, oh, I got a cut and things started rolling. It was like, I got a cut. And then I really had to do the work. The rude awakening is having a massive first cut 
or first single, first song does not equal a very successful career. There are a lot of people who just have the one and then they're kind of never heard of again. And you really have to fight because there are a lot of songwriters in LA that are extremely talented. Not necessarily fight songwriters. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> fight your way through the politics of the music industry. And that's what I did from 2011 until... Here we sit at this beautiful coffee shop. <laughs> I'm just laughing really hard because I'm thinking about Songwriter Fight Club. <laughs> I'd pay to see it. I'd pay it. I'd pay to see a few oh actually. Oh my gosh. We we should discuss this later. So, I'm curious, what was it like the very first time that you heard a song that you wrote on the radio? It was the best feeling of my life. I remember exactly where I was. I was in North Hollywood on Victory Boulevard. I think I was coming home from having my taxes done, actually. So I was very sad. <laughs> As a self-employed person, it's always quite sad doing taxes. It's Come on, it's sad doing taxes. Anyway. If, if you're not part everywhere, of the 1%. <laughs> anywhere at any time, taxes make me sad. But I was driving home, and I remember feeling particularly sad. And I pulled up in front of this old movie theater. I think the movie theater is still there, actually. But back then, it was really janky. And you, you could barely even see the, the films. It was such a blurry old screen. And I pulled up in front of this old movie theater. And I heard a song, the song Come On. It was a song called Nothing Really Matters by the artist Tidy. And I was featured vocalist on it. I heard my voice come on the radio on uh, Sirius XM. And I was like, this is... This is this feeling is why I moved to LA and sacrificed everything. I'm curious as somebody who is talking and listening to her own voice, do you still have that moment of like that's what I sound like? Yes. <laughs> Every time I'm more used to it now, especially my singing voice, like I'm very I'm extremely accustomed to my singing voice, but my speaking voice, I'm always like, wow, I sound like a dork. <laughs> what a dork. It's like that's what I sound like. Cool. I sound like my mom. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. Me and my mom, twin voices. Great. Here we go. <laughs> but come on. Our moms are great. Our moms are great. My mom, my mom is the reason I'm here. I mean, she pushed me to put up a music MySpace back in the day. And in fact, ran my music MySpace for me as like my webmaster. She was pretty integral in all of this because if not for her, I would not be in LA because she was the one who responded to the email from this very, very successful producer inviting me to come audition for a girl group in Los Angeles. And that is how I ended up here. I auditioned for a girl group, got in, the producer decided, eh, maybe not. The girl group is like, maybe like not great. And so I just kept in touch with all of those connections I made whilst being in the group. And stayed friends with everyone and just kept on keeping on and here we are that is a truck full of branches oh there listeners a, there, listeners if you could see what's happening okay so there was a baby crying a truck full of branches a couple of airplanes i wonder where that airplane is going oh there's another one there's a burbank airport nearby yep. actually thank you bob hope thanks bob hope you're the best but actually <laughs> it's the best airport to fly into in la because there's never any lines true but when we were flying in we had to be like oh but it's cheaper to go to lax it and we were is. staying in culver city so okay. it, it all worked out well. But I am curious because I know that when you were younger, you really focused on singing lessons, dancing lessons. You commuted to New York City to do these things. And something that's kind of happening in the K-pop world right now that I think a lot of listeners are probably aware of, Adora. She was the, the producer at Big Hit for a really long time. 
Listeners, you probably remember that name also because she's the person I use as an example that Melanie keeps getting compared to because we just love to pit women against each other. But what I'm curious about is Adora right now has stepped away from producing and has decided that she is ready to take the step in her career as a performer. Is that something that you want to go back towards doing or are you in your niche, niche, whatever it's called? Is it niche or niche? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Firstly, I am so excited for Adora as having met her a few times in Korea and just seeing her I'm not an aura or like karma person but like she just has an aura about her she's a very beautiful spirit you can just tell she loves what she does and she's massively talented at it so I have nothing but respect for her stepping into this new role I guess I would love to continue to put out music as like a DJ feature a featuring Melanie Fontana situation I don't know if I'd go so far as to record my own album and because let me tell you it's not just recording the music and going okay let me send this to a distributor and it's gonna blow up because haha I'm here no it's so much work and that's why I respect artists so much because it's the getting up at 4 a.m. to do a radio interview it's the being in a dressing room at 6 a.m. to perform at 8 a.m. on a morning show. It's, it's promo. It's performing in clubs you don't want to perform in. And I'm really, really happy being behind the scenes. And I think that's one of the things that kind of separates me from many songwriters in L.A. is I think a lot of songwriters are doing this as a means to get to a solo career. And that's awesome and fine. But that's just not what I'm doing. Well, so at some point your trajectory did change because you initially started as wanting to be I a did. performer. I did. And I wanted it real bad. I wanted to be Britney Spears. I wanted to be Britney. I wanted to be Britney Spears mixed with Christina Aguilera, mixed with Mandy Moore. And now I'm aging myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understood all of those references too. So I'm right there with you. So making music is your job. That is what you do. And since you mostly focus in pop music, what kind of music do you listen to in your personal time? Oh, okay. That's an awesome question. So oftentimes I am tasked with listening to my own music in my free time because I'm listening to mixes. I'm listening to see if the song I just wrote has a good balance. Are the drums too loud? Are they too quiet? Is the vocal wet enough? Is there enough reverb? Is there enough echo? Is there enough delay? Um, does it need like a special like drop effect on the vocal like after the chorus? Like... I did. I understood none of that. <laughs> okay, like the okay. So like the oa 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 ah from Boy with Love. That's just me going oa 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 ah. Lindgren, my husband, modifying the vocal and then turning it into like a what we call a wail because it's sort of like inhuman and sort of not. So it's just special effects. So just listening, I'm listening to see like is there enough of an effect? Is there too much of an effect? So I do that about half the time if I can be brutally honest. And then the other half of the time, I'm listening to like hard instrumental rhythm and dubstep. I love EDM. I love artists like Virtual Riot. I love Cruella, who I've gotten to work with, actually both of them. I like listening to jazz, quiet jazz on the very polar opposite end of the spectrum. I just, sometimes I'm like, hey, homie on the counter that <laughs> listens at all times, will you play me some quiet jazz? Nondescript female name. Nondescript female name that Amazon 
has invented to listen to our conversation. Uh, yeah, no, they are listening. <laughs> don't don't let it fool you. So I listen to all types of music. I wondered about that. For me, anyway, there are times where you get a job at a place. You're like, I'm going to go work at Target because I love Target. And then you work at Target and you're like, I never want to shop at Target no. again. And it's so funny because I, I take a lot of reference from stuff I listened to as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like my inspo for what I write now because I feel like a lot of stuff that's being written now kind of all sounds the same and so I try to take from the older stuff like the older I hate to even call this like vintage pop stuff like from like the 90s and the 80s and the 2000s and early 2000s I should say and that's sort of like where I draw reference from but what I listen to is just stuff that has nothing to do with the music I make because sometimes it's just like oh my god I've listened to this all day long I don't think I can stand to hear one more insert genre here song you know what I love is that you are using what you know and what we grew up with and honestly from a marketing standpoint and what I hear listening to pop music that is something that's it's kind of like how 90s fashion is coming back. Yep. In 2000s, like like the, the butterfly hair clips of the multicolor <laughs> hair clips and like tie-dye. Like for a minute there, I had like every single one of my shirts was tie-dyed just last year because it was like the new trend, but it was the old trend. And I was just so happy it was back that I tie-dyed everything. I went too far when I tie-dyed my hair towel and then it <gasps> colored everything blue in mm. my washing machine. And so then I took um, a much-needed step back from tie-dye. That's, uh, are you seeking therapy for tie-dye? I am. It's been a hard year. I'm really glad <laughs> that you're getting the help that you need. My God. But yeah, because I, I was thinking about this. A lot of what I'm hearing in K-pop right now, pop punk has really made yes. a resurgence, which yes. just brings me so much joy where I'm just like, wow, you sound like Linkin Park and Newfound Glory and Good Charlotte. And, and boys I'm, like girls. And I'm so excited. Uh, so yeah, I think drawing from what you know is brilliant, especially because right now that is what's marketable. And I think that is another thing that keeps you in demand is you have a finger on the pulse of what is coming up. I just think I'm very lucky to be the age I am because I've heard and been a fan of a lot of the stuff that is now what is considered having a comeback. (laughs) And so, like, I was diehard pop punk. I was, like, diehard boys like girls. And I'm still kind of diehard pop punk in a way. My favorite band ever is Mariana's Trench. So this Canadian pop band, please tell me you know them. They're amazing. So it's just sort of I'm very lucky to be who I am, where I am right now, because I have reference and am a fan of so much of what is being requested of me as a writer, which is cool. I have never been happier to have someone explain being in their 30s in such a way because (laughs) now I feel seen. A big thing that we talk about on this podcast in probably the Ginger Nuna drinking game is the words parasocial relationship. I should probably just have it tattooed on my forehead. And I... Don't do it. It might garner some looks. But yes. Um, fruit. Where was I going? Oh, fruit. We were talking about parasocial relationships. Right. The drinking game, which I am terrified to play listening to your podcast. I know. I know. It really is. It's probably just like, oh, the parasocial relationship podcast? That's probably what I should just rebrand it as. But anyway, so a lot of what I've realized is, even though I'm in my 30s, I still have parasocial relationships. I'll be honest. I think... 
to an extent, I had a parasocial relationship with you. I tried to go into the previous episode as unbiased as possible, doing unbiased research, especially because I'm sure that there would be people who would listen looking for the negative who already knew the situation and it needed to be addressed. Even though I was trying to go from this unbiased journalistic standpoint, in my gut, it was, I am pro Melanie Fontana. And then I realized that is a parasocial relationship in a way, just feeling, I think she's maligned. I don't actually know exactly what happened because I wasn't there, but neither were any of these people that made this whole situation happen and in the first kind place. kind of neither was I in a weird way. I, I was, um, I, I mean, using internet terminology, <laughs> dragged into it. Well, that's a huge thing about parasocial relationships is it's not a two-way thing. It's that these people think they know someone and that person typically does not know that individual exists. So they're engaging in this parasocial relationship with you based off what they think, but they've never met you. Yeah. I didn't meet you until today. And I'm so far, she's passing the, the vibe check. I, I think I made a good choice. Yay! <laughs> it's not, uh, you, didn't, you're, you didn't melt like the Wicked Witch of oh the West. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I do hate going in water, though. Ugh, same. We're, I'm like a cat. I am a cat, actually. <laughs> Me too. So with parasocial relationships, I still have them. I'm very mindful of them because it's not like, I know I'm not going to marry Min Yoongi. <laughs> I, I would love to. I would rock his world, I would like to think. And my husband is totally okay with that, by the way. He knows. And your child, they would be fine with their mother just... They just wouldn't take know. It off. Okay. I, I, Got it. They're young enough that they're in their own little world. Perfect. But I'm curious because... I think my very first parasocial relationship was probably Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I thought I knew him. I loved him. My first musical parasocial relationship was Hanson. And I'm curious, do you remember your first parasocial relationship now that we know that really everyone has been in one? Vividly. Vividly. It was with Sync. It was with NSYNC. Now, all five of them or one member in particular? It was pretty much one member in particular. Um, I always loved Chris Kirkpatrick. No I did. I, I was a sucker for a guy in glasses and apparently dreads. I love it because I feel like Chris is so underrated. He's underrated. He was overlooked. He is an amazing singer. Everybody loved Justin and JC. And so naturally... I always had this underdog mentality, I think, just innately. And so I was drawn to the underdog. So I loved Chris. Back before the universe imploded, did you want to be able to be recognized? Or have you wanted to fly under the radar okay. at, for your adult life? If I'm being very extremely honest, you want to be recognized within the songwriter world when you're a songwriter. And so naturally, when a news organization or a magazine or a blog wants to interview you as a writer it's so rare that you get you know any kind of recognition and that's fine because you're a writer naturally you're like cool I'm gonna do this because within the writing world this is going to highlight my achievement in the most non-big-headed way it was just like yeah I really enjoyed getting recognition within the writing world it wasn't about gaining Twitter followers or Instagram followers. I don't even have a TikTok. I can't have a TikTok, actually, just because of everything. So, mm. 
Heavy sigh on my end. Heavy sigh on my end, too, to be honest. You've worked with a lot of people. Do you have a dream collaboration? I have a couple dream collaborations. Like, in my head, I see Everglow working with Ariana Grande. <gasps> it's my, my lips to God's ears at this point. I would love to see that. I would also love to see Sorn mm, from CLC, from CLC. do something with Selena Gomez. I don't know why. When I w- and I would just love to be the person that would write that. Are there any non-K-pop collaborations that you would really love to do? It's so funny. Like, I just automatically think when I'm thinking of collaborations, I think about bringing fan communities together in my head as a writer. I, like, weirdly think of it from a business standpoint, too. And so, yeah, I do have some Western collaborations. I would love to do Ed Sheeran. I would love to work alongside a lot of producers that you guys may not know in the fan community, but they're celebrities within the music industry. So I'd love to work with Greg Kirsten. You know, I work alongside Ryan Tedder often, who's, you know, the lead singer of One Republic. And he's one of my favorite co-writers of all time. I'd love to get back in the studio with the Chainsmokers. I'd love to work with Coldplay. People who have changed my life as a listener. You know what I'm saying? Something I didn't think about before I got into K-pop, I didn't, I didn't go into who made this music happen. I knew that most of the time it wasn't the artist performing the music, but I didn't really dive into and be like, I like this producer. I didn't understand DJ Khaled. I didn't understand okay. his value. I was just like, so, so this man is getting paid a bunch of money just to say his name at the beginning of things? I had no idea. No, but he's executive producing. He's making this all happen. Exactly. So, like, there are people. So I, the reason why I feel a little hesitant to go into all these names of people I want to work with is because your listeners and you may not know who they are, but they're like massively famous within the music industry. So there are people that are making their living right now off of music that we're all listening to every single day that we don't know who they are. And that's kind of the end goal for me is like, that's what I do. And that's what I want to continue to do. And if an artist like a Steve Aoki or an Afrojack or someone wants to use my voice on a song, like on one of their DJ features situations, I am a thousand percent down to do that. I just don't know if I'm capable just mentally and physically of doing the artist's life. You know, I tour with Kygo every so often, right? Like, hey, if Kygo called me and was like, hey, Melanie, you want to sing a song uh, for me and, and then come do a few shows a year? Hell yeah. But if it meant, like, having to put together my own production and stage and I don't know, I wouldn't know the first place to start. You work behind the scenes, but you also live in Hollywood. Do you feel that external pressure to still fit into this young beauty mold? Yes and no. I do and I don't. There are days when I don't feel it at all. And then there are days when I feel like I have to keep up with the new writers moving to L.A. who just got out of school or who didn't go to school at all, like myself, who just decided to come out here with a penny and a dream. Sometimes I feel like I need to keep up. And then other days I'm like, I'm seasoned. I've done this, honey. I'm like a good cast iron pan. <laughs> I love that so much. It's like a, it's a juxtaposition. I don't know if I necessarily believe in all of the Libra, Aquarius thing, but I'm a Libra, so I balance <laughs> back and forth. As I mentioned before, I'm sure most of the listeners who are listening to this heard the previous episode. If you didn't, why aren't you listening to that one first? Please pause this one and go back so you know what's happening. Cool. I'll give you a second to do that. And we're back. The way this whole interview came about was after I made the episode about Melanie, I reached out to her and said, hey, 
I made this about you. Part of me was doing it because I wanted her to hear it from me, but also part of me really wanted that validation of like, I created this. Please notice me. <laughs> um, I noticed instantly. I I read my messages. And so I, because, because I am not a celebrity, I do go through my messages and I will reply to people who say nice things. And so when I found this thing, I was in tears. <laughs> and my mom listened to it and my manager listened to it and my husband listened to it. And I don't know who else, but lots of people close to me in my life listened to it and were just so... It was like a sigh of relief listening to it, knowing that there are people out there that have not just villainized me and have seen it from my perspective a little bit. I'm quelling a little bit. You can quell all day, (laughs) sweetie. But what I really appreciated was when I reached out to you, you were so gracious and kind about it, but you were also willing to talk about areas where it's like, that was not quite right. Let's check in. Do you remember off the top of your head? Let's do it. Tell me how I'm wrong. It was your description of how euphoria came about. All right. So I'm going to rewind. I had a boyfriend living in New York City. So I would go back and forth at the time to New York and visit him. And whilst in New York, I would do some sessions with New York producers. I came across a producer named Jordan Young, who went by DJ Swivel. He was a very famous mixer at the time and also producing music. So he not only produces the song with the instrumentation, but he would also use his ears and mix the records till they sound perfect. And he did this for people like Beyonce. So naturally I was like, hell yeah, let's write. We became friends. Years went on. He worked for the Chainsmokers, produced some stuff with them, did some incredible work with them. We stayed in touch. And uh, as his career progressed, I assume this is now this is me just assuming Mm -hmm. he made contact with someone at Big Hit, now Hybe. He invited me in to work on a song that was written in English by him, a couple other people, and another co-writer who at the time was not living in LA. She was in her hometown still. And it was about a half-written song, and at the time it was called Time to Kill. And uh, he says, we need a chorus on this thing, like a hook. And so I came in, and I was like, let's do some melodies. And I came up with a melody that went na 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 We've got so much time to kill, which turned into you are the cause of my euphoria. And I just did the melodies and the lyrics on a song for the chorus, the hook of a song called Time to Kill. And I wrote a little bit of the bridge, which uh I'm having trouble remembering because of all of the gardeners and yelling around us right now (laughs) (laughs) and it it really you've written so much if you could just drop every single thing you've ever written I would be just in shock now I'm felling so I wrote those melodies and lyrics in English and I left and then I get a call from my friend Jordan saying I have placed this song with a Korean band called BTS and I said are you effing kidding me Now, at the time, they had not exploded as they have now here in the States and globally, let's be honest. I wasn't brought in for lyrics. I think you mentioned something about me being brought in for lyric on Euphoria. I wrote zero lyrics on Euphoria. You wrote the the music itself. I wrote the the melody of the words that he's singing. You know, the melody of the the chorus. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. That's me. And then the bridge. So I did that. You were correct about them reaching out to me on Instagram. After that, 
I threw my hands in the air and was like, wow, I'm just lucky that this happened to me because this is BTS and they're huge and amazing and gorgeous. And I continued down the road of just writing for Western artists and months went by and maybe even a year. And I just checked my DMs and in my DMs, I was being approached by Hybe. And that's how I became connected to Hype. So I did not, in fact, reach out. They reached out to me. So I felt... That's the dream. It's like, does that happen in real life? It's like, you know, when you... Like the story of a model getting discovered in a mall and then going on to become, you know, I don't know, Heidi Klum or something like that. But at the same time, I think anybody who has read any of the articles about you or listened to the previous podcast knows that you weren't an overnight sensation. You weren't... Yes, they randomly quote-unquote, reached out to you, but you worked but like your 11 years, ass off. But like 11 years into me being here, like, yes. writing music. And even before that, working on becoming a performer. And, and truly, really falling in love with writing K-pop. I fell in love with writing K-pop in, like, 2012 when I got my very first cut, which was, as you mentioned, the Girls' Generation cut, but it was on their Japanese album. Fun fact. Okay. So I knew them as a K-pop group, but the song came out on their Japanese album, and then the album ended up winning a bunch of gold disc awards, and it was one of those things where I went, huh. <laughs> okay, so they turned my puny little English song into this massive thing, and it came out on, I think, three different versions of the album and then came fx and then came after that just basically a snowball effect i'm curious because you worked with girl groups for many many years or it feels like many many years for many many times many years kind of was bts your first boy group yes it was my first boy group I hadn't done any work on any male projects until Jay Park featured on a Hyorin song. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's there's a bunch of males doing K-pop, too, isn't it? (laughs) You work with both boy groups and girl groups. Your most recent one actually was twice. Congratulations. Everyone was obsessed with Scientist, but I've got to say, Icon, I loved that one. Well, honestly... Those both of those songs came from like a deep place of love for Twice. Like I was very specifically thinking about Twice when I wrote the, those songs. I was really trying to see like in my mind where are these girls wanting to go next as entertainers as what do they want to say next as just women in the music industry and now that you know they've been partnered with Republic Records like what is the next step for Twice? Because I love them so much and I love writing with and for them so much. So those two songs were very big labors of love. Do you usually write with a specific group in mind at this point? Because I know before I would assume it was write it, shop it around, let's see what happens. It depends on the day. Some, Some days I'm like, I very specifically want to do something for X artist. Let's work for X artist. Let's listen to like four of that artist's songs and then let's get inspired by their vibe and then let's write something in that direction. And then oftentimes, because we're thinking of that artist, someone else who wants to be like that artist will take the song. (laughs) So even if it doesn't get to that artist, it gets to somebody who wants to do something such as that style of music. When you are doing it with a certain artist in mind, are you going off of what you've heard in their previous music? Do you do any research into 
having a parasocial relationship with these members. Like, for instance, I think about in BTS, Jin's solos are the ones that resonate with me the most. Sam and I talked about this on the BTS Brackets episode, that based on our parasocial relationship with Jin, those songs seem like they were perfect and crafted for him, especially with the persona that he gives to ARMY. Do you do something similar where you're focusing on people know this artist as being this way? I want to lean into that. Or is it just, I know that they have a dark concept. Go. It's both. It's equally both. Sometimes it's very pointed. I'm very focused on making sure that that artist is able to convey that emotion in the song perfectly. And then other times I'm just like, what if it's just vibe? What if it's just an interesting moment that is unexpected for that artist? So sometimes we're directed or instructed by the label to do it the first way. And then other times they're just like, hey, have fun. There's freedom here. And I'll say, cool. And I'm fine with either way. I have literally no preference. Because you have started working with both boy groups and girl groups, do you as a songwriter feel like you have almost a different voice based on gender of these groups? I mean, we all know that gender is completely fluid and we're sticking with this binary that K-pop has given to us and that we've pretty much grown up with for groups in general because we like to categorize things. Do you have a very specific, like, this is a boy group sound or feel, this is a girl group sound or feel? Well, when I'm cutting a, a demo for an artist, if I know I'm cutting it for a very feminine artist, be that male or female, or neither, I tend to put on more of like a feminine like demo, like I'll sing a little more here. And if I'm doing something for a boy group, I'll sing a little more in my chest voice. Like I'll give it a little more oomph, oomph, chutzpah. <laughs> That makes total sense. And I actually really love how you put that because even though we are categorizing them as boy groups and girl groups, something I think a lot of fans enjoy about K-pop is the androgyny. I love it. That's one thing I've always loved about a lot of the boy groups that have come out of Korea is there's this like beautiful androgyny and none of the toxic masculinity that came along with the boy bands of our childhood. You're not penalized for being beautiful. Exactly. And I think the pendulum doesn't swing as far the other way, but it does to a certain extent. I think about Amber from FX. Love Amber. She seems amazing. And from watching what she's put out since leaving FX, it really seems like the persona she put into FX is a lot of who she is. And she got to be true to herself in a girl group, which I think is really cool. There's another rookie group that just debuted, I think maybe two weeks ago. I have lost all sense of time since being here. It's okay. Um, They're called Billy. And what really surprised me about Billy was, first they've got that dark sound, kind of more of an Everglow sound, but their choreography also, you know, there's a big difference between girl group choreography and boy group choreography. Massive difference. And it was almost like boy group choreography. In fact, there's a dance move that's almost exactly like Hobie's and We Are Bulletproof. It's like, hey, it's the drop thing. <laughs> I know that one. I'll never do it because my knees are already crap. <laughs> it's just really cool watching, even though they are still very binary by calling groups one way or the other. Boy, girl. girl. they still have that fluidity. So, of course, you're going to be writing from your perspective as a woman. And not just K-pop, but I think 
The music industry in general is pretty much a boy's game. You're working yourself into there. What is a really big benefit of being a woman? What kind of things are you adding to these songs that typically male-identifying people wouldn't bring to the table? I think what having a female-identifying person in the room brings to the table is perspective. It's being able to express verbally how it feels to be rejected by, let's say, the opposite sex or to feel like a woman. Lyrically, things are much more poetic, I believe, in a female point of view. So I just think there is something beautiful a woman brings to the table in a session, like writing for an artist. There is a femininity. There is notes that a boy can't sing. Um, you know, unless you're Jimin. <laughs> unless you're Jimin or Jungkook. It's, a, it's very interesting because I do write for a lot of male groups, but I don't often give it too much masculinity. I don't change the notes. I sing it in, the, in my vocal range. I don't really change when I'm writing something for a male group. I'm just like, hey, either hit the note or change the key of the song. I would say the current sound that TXT has is verging towards more masculine because it's got that pop yes. punk and I am obsessed it's with it. It's giving me like Travis Barker oh 2001. My, yes. I said when I first heard Zero by One Love Song, I was like, oh my God, Chester Bennington has come back and is inhabiting Taeyeon's body because it was bonkers. But what I love about that also is Yunjin is running around wearing a dress. And this is so great. Why didn't we have this when we were kids? I do not know. I'm very jealous. But there are like nine different versions of that song laying on my computer right now. Really? That one was one where we went and did a lot of different melody attempts. I call them melody attempts because most, most of my lyrics don't get kept. Most of my English gets chucked with the exception of a few choice things. Oh but, my, my, my. Oh my, my, my is one of them. <laughs> I actually did write, oh my, my, my. I wrote, oh my, 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 oh my, 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 you get me high so fast and I'm coming back around for ya. And they turned it into boy with love. <laughs> I wrote it from the perspective of a superhero coming to like save his person or her person. I love that. I did not know. You heard that here first. This is a Ginger Nuna exclusive. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've ever told that to anyone. I was like, what if I was super person and I was literally flying around the world saving people I love from bad choices or bad decisions or just bad experiences. You've written for a lot of established groups, but you've also been working for rookie groups. You did the debut singles for both TXT and in Hypen. When you're writing these songs, is there a difference between writing for an established group or being like, this is a rookie group, we're creating their first sound? There is a bit more freedom when you're writing for a rookie group. You will get some notes from the label, hey, you know, we want the song to sound like ABC, but feel free to do X, Y, and Z and put whatever you want on it. Sprinkle in your own thing. And then sometimes they're just like, we don't know what we want, but uh, we know we want the song to be guitar heavy and we want it to be like loud, single vocal. So we will get direction, but oftentimes there's a lot more freedom writing for a rookie group than writing for somebody established because you don't have the uh, little tricks of the trade where you can like go back to their Spotify and listen to like six albums and get inspired. Like writing Crown, still Crown to this day is one of my favorite songs ever. I, I said this, I think in my second episode is that so far still Crown is my favorite K-pop song of all time. And I've listened to so many Stop. since then. The music video alone 
where he grows the tail to me is just the cutest thing. I love where they're going now. They're definitely more manly and growing up. And that's cool. That's because in Hypen is coming in and it's like, we're the young ones yeah. now. Well, I mean, Nine and Three Quarters was a song that transitioned them, I think, from boyhood to man. It was very Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And it was a cool transition for them. It was a very seamless transition for them, I think. When the song's done and the song is placed and recorded and I sing my, sometimes sing my Korean background vocals on it, it's so cool to see it all wrapped up with a bow and like the MVs out and what is it like to sing in Korean? Scary. <laughs> Do you have someone with you who's able to no. say your pronunciation what is the, crap? What the label will do and it's like okay so for instance on on, right? They will send me the a cappella of the boys singing and I will have them isolated just the vocals isolated. And I will just phonetically copy what they're doing. And I'll go like every like six words by six words. And then my husband will audio engineer it and cut and paste it so it sounds like one thing. Like on the uh, IU feature into the island. I have a full version of that song where I'm just singing it alone. Can I have that when you're gone? <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I'm curious because you are based in L.A. Yes. And... Even pre-COVID, it just doesn't make sense to always fly out and meet with people you're working with. Do you actually talk to the artists themselves at any point? Sometimes. Sometimes. For instance, uh, an artist such as Minji. She's very communicative with me about what she wants and what she doesn't want. Like, I'm in touch with her. With Hyorin, same. I'm in touch with her about edits uh for some of the artists signed to the bigger companies you go through the ANRs and you go through their contact at the label like it's but it's them telling the ANR, hey this is what i need this is what i hear or it's hitman bang saying this is what i need this is what i want telling his ANRs, and then they email me who i've actually worked with mr bang in the room together on uh the TXT song, was it Runaway? Yes, it was Runaway. It was very incredible to be in his presence because he really is. It, he is the author of all of these worlds. And so I think people actually need to give him more credit. I think that's something I didn't realize about K-pop until I started looking into it more. And right now I'm finally getting caught up on the survival show Loud. And I didn't know anything about JYP as a person, except that people for some reason like to make fun of him. And he's another one where it's like, this man is a genius. I it's understand. We're just like, in it. <laughs> these people made all of this happen. They know what they are doing. So you write for both K-pop and Western pop. Is there a difference in the sound? Or is because K-pop is becoming Westernized, is there less of a difference? There's less of a difference now, but back in... 2013, 2014, through almost like up till 2017, it was a lot more intelligent. I guess, yes, intelligent is a word. K-pop, you're allowed to do major minor key changes in the middle of a song. You just have a lot more freedom to be a musician in K-pop, even nowadays, I think. Uh, whereas Western music is a bit more atonal, a lot of single voice stuff, single instrument, single voice. You know, in the in the days of Billie Eilish and stuff like that, it's a lot more simple here in the West. And and disco 
what can you do on disco? It's just like a vocal here, a background vocal there. But with artists in Korea, it seems like I've been more free to just go, go off, jazzy. and So the sound itself is really different. Yes. And lyrically, it's busy. It's much more busy because Korean phonetically is just a much more busy language than English. English is sort of like just wavy and soft, whereas Korean is very percussive. So you're allowed to say more. I think what I like about current Western pop music, we are getting back into a renaissance of storytelling songs, especially with female artists like Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish. um, Oh, who's the one I'm obsessed with? Olivia Rodrigo. Where it's just, they're bringing back telling these stories. And that's something that I loved about K-pop to begin with was even sometimes the title tracks are lyrically just cerebral and beautiful. And that's something that we don't usually get in American pop music. Yeah, it's very much a storytelling world. And I'll tell you from the behind the scenes point of view, I'm getting emails where butter is a reference now. Like, hey, this artist just got signed to blah, 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 Atlantic Records. And they're new and their sound is like this. And they'll send link to like three songs. And it's like one of their older songs. And then it's BTS butter. And then it's some very obscure Eric Nam song, you know? So, yeah. Props to you, Eric Nam. Yes, Eric Nam. What song are you proudest of? That's a really hard question because it's easy for me to say Good in Bed by Dua Lipa because it was on an album that won Best Vocal at the Grammys, right? It's easy for me to say Boy With Love because I got to stand in Times Square and underneath a sign that said Boy With Love and cry my eyes out. It's easy for me to say songs that have blown up, but actually, um, Bon Bon Chocolat by Everglow is one of my proudest songs. I just love every melody. I love my husband's production. My husband did the instrumentation on that one. The beat, the song, the day I wrote it, the mood I was in. It was so cool to watch it go from a song just called Everything, where I was just going, everything, everything, you want to be my everything, to becoming this kind of splash in the water for Everglow. I will also say You Know Better by Hyorin. It's a song about her feeling the pressures of fame and betrayal of people in her life. And so it was very cool to write that with her in the room and then see it go off in Korea. We've done a lot of shop talk, and I'm sure there are people who are tuning in to this just to hear the drama. Here we go. I just want you to have a chance to put out there, clear up any misconceptions. There are tweets that are attributed to you. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff attributed to me. And honestly, like, I'm going to be brutally honest. I was scared to do this interview because I was afraid, what if I say the wrong thing and it gets into the wrong fan's hands and I end up a Twitter trending topic again and my phone number gets leaked again and... It's just, I was scared. But I think one of the things that we really, both of us, want to focus on is that word attributed. The internet, it's so easy to make things up. There's the fake quote, like, don't believe what you read on the internet, Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. Or like, I never said that, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Which, I mean, I feel like he would say, but that's neither here nor there. But Some of the tweets that have circulated are true, but some of them are completely fabricated. Of course. Do you feel comfortable differentiating between the two? Absolutely. There are some tweets that were fabricated using, I do not know what, Photoshop, whatever, where I 
it looks as though my account is tweeting something negative about Muslims or tweeting out the N-word, which I never have and never would. It's bad enough when people personally are feeling vitriol, but the fact that it affected your job. It could have. And what makes me happy is it didn't actually affect my job because they're fabricated. People saw through it and understood that it was fake. But who knows? There might be someone out there that wants to work with me that sees it and thinks that's real. Right now, there could be. And just for that person, if they're listening, they're not. (laughs) Well, but I'm also curious. Writing is your job. And we are living in this era of cancel culture, especially just with our access to the internet. And we're getting to the point where it's really hard to separate an artist from the art because there have been problematic artists forever. Now that you've gotten to a certain point in your career, are you at a point where you can pick and choose what projects you want to take? Yes. And do you ever choose to go with a project or not go with a project based on not a person's sound or anything like that, but how they're portrayed. Does that affect you when you decide who you're going to work with? I do sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt because of the fact that I have been given the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure many times now, especially after everything that happened, um, you guys gave me the benefit of the doubt. So I were here right now. And so I do tend to do that more often because I know how false stories can become so real to, to people. If I were to work with a controversial artist, I would definitely do my due diligence by seeking counsel of the label or management, my own management, and just poking around because you never know what's real and you never know what's fake in the media. Something that seems so real to the public could just be a total lie, you know, in real life, in reality. Something that came up a lot with your collaboration with Young for Sweet Night was who wrote this song. And what I can't quite wrap my head around because I don't, I I just don't know. I come at it from two sides. One side is there is no such thing as a direct translation. No, there isn't. There's none. There's the cultural nuance. There's the idioms that don't work. Like if you said kick the bucket in a Korean song, they'd they'd be like, like, why are you kicking buckets? If you said burn a bridge in a German song, they would say, huh? For me, I have had fun doing English covers of K-pop songs, and I realize I am using what Jin said in Abyss, what this translation says, but I am not translating it exactly. But at the same time, you come across works of art throughout history, but the most recent one that I can think of, the the book The Little Prince, I can never say the guy's name right because I never took French. I tried to write it phonetically. Let's see if I got it. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry? Maybe? (laughs) I feel like that was a very good attempt. And the French would say, thank you, now speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you for putting up with that. But what I'm putting out is, he is French. The Little Prince is a fairly recent, in terms of art, piece. And what we read in the United States is a translation. And we never attribute that book to the translator. We attribute the book to him. So... Where is that line when you are writing a song where you are translating what someone else wrote? There is sometimes a request from a label to say, really do your best to make this rhyme and work. So they'll say, okay, so here's a really rough, raw translation. There's going to be a lot of things that won't make sense in English. But if you can stick to the theme of this song 
and do a lyrical interpretation, which is something I've done several times for Korean acts. Then there are times like with Sweet Night, where I wrote with my husband the full English lyric about the theme of the song. We were not told to write anything specific. We were just told, this is what the song is about. Here are the melodies V did. So much like how I work, it was the opposite. Where I normally sing the English lyrics and sometimes blah, 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 because I know for a fact they're going to be... They're going to change them. They're going to change them. They're going to re-lyric them into Korean. A Korean lyricist will re-lyric it. It was the opposite. It was V singing melodies and sort of blah, blah lyrics. And my task and my husband's task was to create an English lyric. And that's what we did. And then we got some feedback and then we changed some things. And then that was it. And the, the feedback was coming directly from V and the label via the modern magic of email. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting because right now, up until we were having this conversation, because I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, and I never really separated the different parts of writing a song. Uh -huh. And I think something a lot because you had you've had two scandals the boy with love scandal yes and the sweet night, sweet night scandal and the thing <laughs> i hate that i've had scandals so much but you, but at the same time you've had scandals oh, like no. you you are important enough to have scandals <laughs> i do something stupid and they're like what's that redhead doing Meh. <laughs> but finally talking through this clicked for me something that army didn't realize when they said that tay wrote this song he wrote the song he wrote the music that doesn't mean he wrote the lyrics and i think there was a lot of confusion mm -hmm. where there was it was and it was unfortunate that there were other articles written about the song that did not acknowledge my husband or me and that's not my fault that's not Tay's fault, that's not even the label's fault. It's just that the press focused on V, which is what they should do because it is his song. Well, and that's how they're going to sell their article. And Exactly. It, it's that whole thing where, is clout chasing real or are you just doing your job? And at that point, they were just doing their job. They did not care about Lindgren or me, which is fine because this is what I do every day. I write songs for people so they can have songs to go make a million people happy at concerts, right? So... I was not co-writing Sweet Night for attention. I was doing it to help better, I don't know, just help an artist make the most of that music for that artist, for that particular project was for the Itaewon class. Yeah. So that being said, I don't think it's necessarily a fan's fault for reading a Forbes article that said he wrote that song while he was on vacation and he did it. It was his self-produced. and. I think he did self. I don't know much about how the instrumentation happened because I just received the song with his melodies on it. And then we played piano and wrote the lyrics and sent it back. I'm so glad that you have cleared this out because it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it'll make a lot of sense to listeners. And I hope that listeners, you'll pass this on to other people just to educate them because I, as a music consumer, I've been listening to music my whole life, but it wasn't until I got into K-pop that I really started looking at where my music comes from. And I think it's 
ironic that there are people who will comb through liner notes and find Melanie's name and freak out who aren't ARMY. This is something that Once's were doing just a few weeks ago. And at the same time, when this article comes out, even if it is from a reputable source, they aren't taking the time to look at those liner notes for that song and see that you did contribute. It is there in black and white. That's a really important thing about media literacy. And it's really hard, especially with parasocial relationships and wanting someone that you care about to succeed. But you want to put the same amount of care into everything. If you are looking it up to prove a point because you want to be proved right that this person worked on this, you should also, if you want to prove that this person didn't work on this, do that legwork too. Exactly. I mean, I, I appreciate that so much. It's, it's been up and down to have releases because sometimes I get nothing at all. Sometimes there's no backlash whatsoever when I work on a song in Korea. And then sometimes there's like a proverbial shitstorm of hate and it makes me go like why did I even jump on this why did I and it makes me sad because it's my passion and my joy in life and and more than sad it makes me deflated another thing that we talked about in the previous episode about you was how a lot of what's going on I think with these scandals is inherently rooted in sexism 100 percent and I and I don't want to say it's because people are uneducated, but I think it's because people have been educated that the music industry is a man's world and a woman is just lucky to be in it. And it's nothing that anyone learned on purpose. It's just something that has been, it has just has been since the dawn of the music industry. In, in a dark time in the world, it's just nice to be part of bringing people together and not ripping them apart. When it seems like the media and like news just wants to rip people apart, it's just nice to be part of like bringing communities together from South America to Indonesia to Sweden to South Africa. I still can't believe I've been lucky enough to do that. But as a woman, it's just been a little bit harder. Just a little bit harder. Thinking in terms of people that I keep using ARMY because you're most well known for your collaborations with BTS. But somebody that ARMY also has conflicted feelings about their working with BTS is Supreme Boy. And I feel like even though they really don't like what Supreme Boy has done or put out into the world, and they even sometimes say like, oh, I really hope that, that the rap line isn't friends with him anymore. But they're still not saying, I don't want to listen to this song because Supreme Boy was on it. The way that they say Melanie Fontana was involved, so this is going to be garbage. Yes. Um, I think that is directly because I'm a woman. It's directly because women are just looked at as weaker. Women are also, when in positions of power, looked at as bitches. And this is just the way it is. And it's really the fault of prior generations of business people who did business as such, who treated women as such. That's why I say I can't fault people sometimes, but what you can fault people for is not educating themselves. And not attempting to change. And not attempting even just a little bit to look at it from another's perspective and not trying to change, of course. This has just been so great. I mean, I had so much fun at the BTS concerts. But I might say that this was the highlight of my trip. Stop. And me too. Honestly. Me too. Thank you. Is there anything else that 
we haven't covered that you would like to tell people just about either your career, you as a person. We know your favorite color is orange, so we don't have to cover that. It's so funny. Now that I'm here, it's like everything I want to say goes out the window. But it's like what I really want people to know is it didn't stop me. You know the old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Well, no, it didn't make me stronger. It weakened me and made me much more aware of my mental health issues. <laughs> but I definitely am much more aware of myself as a person now, maybe a little too aware. I have to now find a little more balance again. I felt very balanced and proud in 2019. And then in 2020, I felt the polar opposite of that. And now I'm kind of just sort of coming back to normal, like getting back to normal, getting my mental health back, figuring out how to be proud of myself again. Because for about a year and a half, I forgot how to, and I hate even using this word, this phrase, because this is what I was accused of, take credit for all of my hard work. But what I want people to know is you can't take, you can't take credit away from people. You can just belittle them. That's all you can do. You can't take credit from an artist. You can either work on the song in whatever capacity you worked on a song, or you're not on the credit list or credit sheet at all. And there's no such thing as lying about working on something when public credits are a thing. Listeners, that's just important for all of you to keep in mind also. Give yourself credit, especially if you are female, female-identifying, We are told as women to share our credits. Be proud of what you've put out there. Be proud of whatever it is. Did you do a great job at your job? Did you get a raise? Did you raise a child who didn't turn out to be an axe murderer? Did you get out of bed this morning? Be proud of whatever it is that you are putting out into the world. And don't let anyone take that away from you. And it's hard. It's hard on in, in a world where you have access to celebrities now 24-7. When I was a fan child, you couldn't just go on a V-Live and watch your favorite artist work on a new song. That was something very secretive and private. That was something that happened a million miles away in the stars. And now it's so tangible, people feel connected to it like they have ownership over it. And I think it sort of takes the magic out of being a fan. I know a lot of fans will disagree with me on that, but I sort of miss the days when I didn't know how everything worked, when I wasn't behind the old curtain, you know? It's been one of those journeys for me. It hasn't gone up and down and then up again. It has been down, 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 then more down, then up, then up, up, up. And then it's like, I forget about it for a second. And then I'm down on the floor crying about it again. Being abused on the internet is equally as bad as being abused in person, if not worse, because people can get so much more vicious with their words than most people can with their hands. It's true. I, listeners, you know, if you, especially if you've listened to every episode, and if you haven't, why haven't you? Please do. But All of them. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> but you know that this is my pseudonym. You know that I've never gendered my child. My child does have a gender identity that they adhere to at this point in time, but I don't share that about myself because the internet is a scary place. And I had the luxury of being this faceless podcaster. Melanie didn't have this luxury. And honestly, I don't think she should have to have that luxury. We should be treating each other on the internet with kindness Remember that they are people. Remember that anything you put out there, they could see. And 
to add to that, if somebody <laughs> is portrayed by somebody else, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they portray themselves. So maybe someone made some headlines about a person saying they were behind something when in reality they were just behind the scenes and helped. So like the Variety article, I believe it was, that said the woman behind BTS. I am not the woman behind BTS. I just happen to be behind the scenes and a news outlet wanted to sell some press. And also just keep in mind when you're using your media literacy, you read that article because of that title. That's what drew you in. So just keep that in mind. Melanie, thank you so much for doing this with us. Thank I you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Listeners, I'm curious, what do you think? You can send your unkpopular opinions to unkpopularopinionspod at gmail.com. And also be sure to follow me on Twitter at unkpopularpod. There I share my off-the-cuff unkpopular opinions, which are typically about me thirsting over members of BTS. but come on, we all have that parasocial relationship. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to keep questioning.